Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Take out your Bibles. That could be your phone, too. If you're doing your phone, it's okay. You're still saved. (laughs) Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11. Remember, if you were with us when we began this particular book, I made a statement which I believe is still quite true. And that's without the book of Daniel, it'd be nearly impossible to really have a a solid understanding of the book of Revelation. And the opposite of that is also true. Without the book of Revelation, uh, some of these things would seem to be isolated and perhaps even unknowable. But because of the combination of those two books, along with the first and second letters that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, we have what we call the completed revelation or the entire word of God. And so we, looking back now, have some information, of course, Daniel didn't have. As you remember, as we began kind of this march into the end times, which began back in chapter 9, really in earnest, and now we get here towards the end of chapter 11, before we get to chapter 12, we're getting a picture of things that the Jewish people experienced, of course, uh, under a number of rulers, but we're also going to get to a ruler that hasn't come yet. And so tonight, much like last week's study, a tale of two empires, this one is a tale of two princes. And so here in chapter 11, you have these couplets, these pairings, if you will, that you can kind of see how one of these things that we'll look at last week, these empires, both Media Persia and Greece, and then tonight, these two princes, these rulers, um, which the first one being Antiochus Epiphanes, and the second one uh, being a ruler who is still yet to come. We know him as the Antichrist. One often pictures the other or as a type of the other. And the reason for that is so that we'd have a connection with historical events, things that we can put our finger on and go, if God was speaking about these things and told us exactly what would happen, then there's absolutely zero reason for us to think about what he has written that we have not yet seen come to pass and think of it in any other way than it surely will also come to pass. And so that is no more important than we find in the verses we'll cover tonight as we pick up in verse 17 and we'll go through verse 39 which will not complete chapter 11 because there is a part of chapter 11 which we'll save for next time. Uh, As as in it, we will also see uh, another set of two. And so let's pray. We'll pick up in verse 18 tonight as we continue here in Daniel chapter 11. Father, again, we come not in fear. Lord, we don't come tonight because we're afraid of what's going to happen in the very last days, but because we want to be aware of ultimately what time we live in or the days in which we live certainly are perilous, but you have come that we might have life. Lord, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us a great balance between knowing the truth and knowing what lies ahead and also knowing where in whom our hope lies. And so, Lord, we pray that those who maybe tonight are a little fearful would just simply turn their lives fully over to you and walk in that Sabbath rest we saw this morning. And so we give you this time. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might remember in our last study, we we came across these uh, two warring factions of the Greek Empire, a couple of generals that ultimately would birth Uh, Two very important kings, one the king of the north, one the king of the south, uh, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies. So you have one in Syria in the north, you have one in Egypt in the south. And so we're continuing with the rulers very specifically 
of the northern kingdom at this point in time in verse 18. So we're continuing that thought process. And it says, and after he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall shake many, but a ruler shall bring reproach against them to an end. And with reproach removed, he shall turn back on them. And then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And so this first he that we see in this particular verse, in verse 18, is the first, or Antiochus the Great. Uh, He turned his attention towards the Mediterranean coastlands, the islands. Um, He was bringing conflict between himself and the Romans. Uh, He would fight several naval engagements, battles in the Aegean Sea. And as you look at the history of this particular ruler, um, he ruled Asia Minor from roughly the area of Trace, while Rome is kind of seeking to control from the south. He's uh, there in Macedonia, ruling a little more north of there. And, And so as Antiochus begins to boast about his power, uh, he, he begins to kind of draw the, the interest of Rome. And so Rome sends a general, Lucius Cornelius Scipio, uh, to deal with him. Antiochus is then defeated in a battle in about 190 BC. Uh, he keeps boasting, and unfortunately, that boasting comes back on his head. And just as this passage says, um, he is going to, to die in that. He's, he's compelled to sign a treaty at Appium, and, and when he signs that treaty, it basically surrenders all of his claims to what we would call Europe at the time, the southern part of it. Uh, basically, he would then rule Asia Minor as we now know it today. And then Antiochus uh, begins to, to try to plunder uh, a temple, and then once that happens, ultimately, um, he is going to fade out of existence. His eldest son, Antiochus, uh, is, is also going to come on the scene. That's the one that we'll uh, deal with tonight. And so as you look at this little tiny bit of history in this one verse, it actually is focusing us toward this eldest son uh, that will be we will know as Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, He is actually not supposed to be ruler, but he will end up ruler anyway by his, basically his military exploits. And so a little bit of the information, the 411 on Antiochus Epiphanes, verse 21, and in his place. So we have one king that's deposed, that would be Antiochus the Great, his son's going to rise up. And in his place shall arise a vile person. So begin to take a look at some of the things that are said about this particular ruler, because this is the way we track Antiochus Epiphanes through history. And so as you look at him, he's a vile ruler whom they will not give honor or royalty. He is actually not supposed to be king. And so that is also true of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, He shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And this is the interesting thing about him. Antiochus Epiphanes had no legitimate claim to the throne. Um, But because that throne belonged to his nephew Demetrius, he was the rightful heir to it, he kind of has all these political maneuverings and intrigues that he brings in. He kind of brings in some flattery and he says, you know, I'm kind of really a good guy. And basically he brings in all of his family, his brother Attalus, um, another king from a region of and and so these guys kind of all get together and they make a bunch of treaties. And then verse 22, it says, in the force of a flood, and remember that floods can be floods of water, but in this case, the force of flood here is a flood of people. They should be swept away before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. So as Antiochus routes the forces of Egypt and battles that take place, Uh, between these kind of loose alliances that are made. Um, Basically, this prince of the covenant likely refers to either the Jewish high priest, who at that time was Ananias III, um, or later that he would be murdered, or Ptolemy Philopater. So remember, there's these two kingdoms. So in the south, you still have the Ptolemaic region uh, of northern Egypt, which is ruled also by Greece at the time. And basically, Antiochus befriends them before they were at war kind of with one another. And now Antiochus is kind of like, yeah, well, can't we just all get along? In verse 23, it says, And after a league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, or he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So Antiochus kind of is one of the first people to kind of bluff his way into some military power. He pretends he has an army that's larger than it actually is. 
And because he knows how to move them very quickly from place to place, basically it looks like he has a larger army than he actually has. And so this artificial friendship kind of exists between Egypt and Syria. And so as he advances his interest, basically what happens is, is this king, as we see here in verse 23, after this league is made, he begins to kind of act deceitfully. He goes behind the backs of these rulers he's made uh, these, these covenants with. And so he pretends to support his nephew, uh, Ptolemy Philippator, and then ultimately uh, he just turns his back on them. Antiochus actually goes so far as to have himself crowned as a regent uh, and, and even one would say a king or a pharaoh of the time uh, at Memphis in Egypt. And so verse 24, he goes on to say, and this is all talking about this one ruler. And so as you look back through history, there's only one person that meets all these criteria. It's named as a single individual ruler, as we have in this particular passage. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them plunder and spoil and riches, and he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And so Antiochus, again, we look at his history, and we find that he plundered the conquered lands, but he was viewed rather like a, a Robin Hood of sorts. He would go in, he would conquer a land, he would take all of the riches, but in order to endear himself to the people that he conquered, he would begin to give out those riches to the poor. And so even though they were conquered, they were better off than they were under their own rulers. And so ultimately, he now has an army in the foreign lands because he's made friends with people even though he conquered them. And so he's an interesting character. He's an interesting study. And the reason he's interesting is you're going to see every last one of these characteristics in the next prince whom we have described to us as this beast that's going to rise up out of the sea of the book of Revelation, the Antichrist himself. And so what Antiochus does in the real world, the Antichrist will do in the spirit world. He is going to accomplish all these things on a much grander scale. And so he uses these, these political moves to kind of set himself up to where people worship him. He actually becomes a good guy in many people's view. Verse 25 and 26, notice how this continues. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And so remember, he's the king of the north. The king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. And yes, those who eat the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him, and his army shall be swept away. And so Antiochus makes a second military expedition, and he heads south against Egypt's region called the Sycon. And so as he goes into this lower region of Egypt, kind of down near Thebes, uh, he, he takes this very large army, a great army by this time. Uh, and it almost seems as though he's made not only friendships, but he's actually made kind of, a, in an essence, a brotherhood with some of these leaders that he's, that he's taken over their kingdoms. And ultimately, because of uh, treason, Antiochus uh, is going to be you know, kind of entrapped in his own camp and ultimately, he's going to be defeated in the second attempt to kind of capture the northern part of Egypt. And so these kings' hearts, verse 27, shall be bent on evil. They'll speak lies at the same table. It shall not prosper, for the end shall be at an appointed time. And this is where it starts to transition. And so look at some of the wording that's used here, speaking of kind of the deception um, that we certainly see uh, will come in the very last days. And so uh, when Sycon, the ruler of this, of this area, was proclaimed king, Antiochus enters into an, ally, an alliance with uh, one of the Ptolemies, Philometer. And as he begins to rule, they lay siege to the city of Alexandria. And basically, they, they, they kind of begin to fight these inter-turmoils uh, amongst one another. In verse 28, while it, he was returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the, the holy covenant. 
and so he shall do damage and return to his own land. And this is where you start to see the focus of both Antiochus and also the focus of the Antichrist. Because the focus of the Antichrist is going to be the covenant people, the Jewish people, the people that we call the Israelites, those who live in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice verse 29, at the appointed time, he shall return and go towards the south, but shall not be like the former or the latter. And so Antiochus in 168 BC makes his third expedition against Egypt. He has zero success this time, like he he had some limited success uh, in his second and had uh, quite a bit of success in his first, but it doesn't work this time. But what he does do is he turns his face back towards the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant people. And this is where it becomes extremely important because that is the focus of both the final days of Antiochus Epiphanes and also is the focus of the Antichrist himself in the very last days. The bottom line is, is this man hated, absolutely loathed God's people, the Jewish people. After hearing of this kind of rejoicing, possibly that Antioch's Epiphanes is killed, the Jewish people, according to the book of Maccabees, they're in 1 Maccabees in chapter 1, and also 2 Maccabees chapter 5, they're, they're, they're like rejoicing. He's maybe dead because he keeps heading back towards the Jewish people, and he, he really develops a, kind of a bloodlust towards them. It's like, if I could wipe out any per- people on earth, it would be them, because they seem to be the ones that always managed to survive, and he couldn't stand the fact that the Jewish people were still uh, sitting in the land of, that we call the promised land. Verse 30, notice what it says, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him, and therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant. There's only one holy covenant at this point in time. There's no new covenant. There's just the covenant. It's the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenant people, which would be the Jewish people, the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes. Uh, We know them collectively as Israel. And so he'll come against uh, the holy covenant and do damage. And he shall return and shall regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. In other words, he's actually going to befriend Jewish people who forsake the covenant. In other words, they become uh, people who do not any longer serve the Lord their God. And so to fight Antiochus, the two Ptolemies seek the aid of the Romans. And in order to do that, they send part of the Roman navy to come against Antiochus. They meet at Cyprus. They engage in this naval skirmish, this naval battle. Ultimately, the commander of the Roman fleet uh, delivers Antiochus some letters from the Roman Senate. And basically, they draw a circle uh, with a staff in the sand uh, around Antiochus. They command him to reach for his decision before he steps out. And basically, Antiochus says, okay, I'll leave your kingdom alone, but give me this land. And that land happens to be the land of Israel. And so he then sets fully his sights on Israel. Now think about this in light of what we know and what's coming actually in the second prince that we look at here about why the Antichrist is going to do what he does. Because he's going to be at first a peaceful ruler. He's not going to be a warring ruler. He's going to make a peace treaty that's going to involve the entire Middle East and when he makes that peace treaty, that peace treaty is going to stand for the first three and a half years of what we call the tribulation. And so Antiochus has been through that time. He's kind of gone back and forth through Israel. He hasn't really focused his attention on it, but now he is absolutely focused on it. And again, the apocryphal book, if you happen to have an NASB Bible with the apocrypha in it, you'll have First Maccabees there. And if you read chapter one, you'll find some of these statistics. Antiochus decides that he's going to slaughter the religious Jews. So those that ultimately would serve the Lord, he not only hates, he murders about 40,000 of them. And he sold almost as many Jews as slaves as, as, as he killed. And so there's 40,000 are dead. There's another 40 um, that have been sold into slavery. 
Um, he would then do horrific things and ultimately would end up defiling the temple. He, he would boil um, pig flesh and sprinkle that broth on the temple altar in Jerusalem. Uh, he enters the sanctuary. He actually takes the golden altars, the lampstand, the giant menorah, and all of the utensils. He, he took the table of showbread, the table of the presence of the Lord, the cups for the drink offerings. He takes every bit of it and, and, and he strips all of it out of there and desecrates it, takes the gold off the front of the temple, basically the gold that was put on there by Solomon, he now is peeling the gold off the front of the temple and he begins to make little gods and goddesses out of it. Uh, he takes the silver and gold, the costly vessels, took all the hidden treasure, everything that he, would, he could find and, and he turns all of that into idols. Notice verse 31, and the forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they'll take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And so the armed forces of Antiochus guard the temple. Um, the regular worship in the temple is completely discontinued. On the Sabbath day, the city is not only attacked by Antiochus' army, um, but he kills the women and children. He, he captures multitudes. Uh, he takes and throws them off of the southern point. If you remember in our study in Luke, when Jesus was tempted, he was taken to the pinnacle of the temple. That is the southeast corner of the temple at its highest point, more than 100 feet to the ground. Antiochus, here in 168 BC, takes the children and throws them off of that same place into the Hinnom Valley, and they fall to their death, and he stops when there's so many bodies at the bottom, it's no longer killing them. So this is one seriously evil person. This is a man who, when, when you look back at the history of what he did, it's almost unfathomable that anyone would turn this type of ire on a single group of people for essentially no reason other than they had not bowed to worship him. When he went through their land, they gave him no honor. They couldn't care less. They basically did nothing when he passed through on his way to Egypt. And so they begin to resist. The story is found there. Uh, the climax of all of this is Antiochus's blasphemy and the erection of an image of Zeus. So the Greek god Zeus in the temple itself and the altar of burnt offerings. So they're at the curtain. So this giant veil, when you went into the holy place, so the first place you, when you go into the temple is the holy place. The second place is the holy of holies. In the holy place, there were really three specific things. The table of showbread, the incense altar and the giant menorah. And they would be in that order from right to left. And so he removes the altar of incense, which is where the prayers of the saints were offered up to go to God. In essence, when you came in, the, the bread was there for all of the tribes. It was the bread that the priests ate every day. It was swapped out every day. But they're directly in front. Before you were able to go into the Holy of Holies, there was a place for you to stop and offer your prayers up to God, and he erects there an idol statue of Zeus. If that wasn't enough, he then goes and decides that rather than uh, you know, continue the sacrifices, it would be out in the courtyard at the brazen altar and, and the washing that would happen in the bronze laver. He actually brings a pig inside and slaughters the pig in the holy place and then takes the blood in and sprinkles it in the Holy of Holies. And so this mention of the abomination of desolation in that sense in this day and time actually occurred because he desecrated the temple of God. And this is the thing that the Jewish people under the Maccabean rule uh, would come back and square away. And it's the reason that the Jewish people to this day celebrate Hanukkah was the cleansing and the rededication of the temple as it was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. He goes on, verse 32, and those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And so the Maccabean revolt begins at this time. Judas Maccabeus has raised up an army. 
And basically, they are practicing guerrilla warfare. And so they go throughout the land. Uh, they firmly resist. Ultimately, they're slaughtered in innumerable amounts. And in fact, if you go to Israel today, if you travel there, one of the most cherished things that you can possess as a Jewish person is a coin from the reign and rule of the Maccabees. Because it was when Israel stood its ground. It's when Israel finally said, enough's enough. We're not bowing. We don't care what you do to us. We're going to stand even if it costs us our life. And in verse 33, and those people who understand shall instruct many, and yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and plundering. And now when they fall, they shall be aided with little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, to make them white until notice when the next part of this particular passage begins to come into view until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. So there is a shift here in verse 35 that points us towards a different period of time. It is the second prince that's in this passage. And so Antiochus does all these things. The Maccabean revolt occurs. The Maccabean revolt actually births uh, the, the Hasidim. We would call them Hasidic Jews. And so the Hasidim are kind of like these warrior Jewish uh, people that, that raise up and they're going to hold on to the Torah. They're going to continue to worship uh, the Lord their God. And so they are formed as part of Israel who stands up. And they're in First Maccabees at the very end of it. Uh, we find Judas Maccabees, the son of Matthias, leads a successful revolt against the Syrians. Um, these successes, unfortunately, uh, no, nor those of the rest of the Maccabean family are permanent. Uh, there was still a ton of suffering, and ultimately the Jewish apostates were treated with incredibly bloody severity um, by a traitor named Judas Maccabeus. And so he would actually turn on his own people, which is exactly what this passage says, that from within inside, there would be someone in their own group that would turn against them. And so uh, those, those Jewish apostates uh, would be turned on, and, and those that fell away, Judas Maccabees would take care of them, and it was just an incredible picture of the history of that day and time. And if you look at the predictions that are here in verses 33 to 35, they extend well beyond the profanities, the things that happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. And there is a time marker that's given here for our identification. Notice it says, for the purification of Israel is until an appointed, an appointed time or the time of the end. That is the same appointed time that we saw back in chapter 9. That's that final week. That's Daniel's 70th week. That's the time that we know is the time of Jacob's trouble, the time when Israel would finally see the light and it was still an appointed time. And so these predictions kind of jump across this huge time gap between Antiochus Epiphanes and the one that would come that we will call the Antichrist, the one that we know so much about from the book of Revelation, from First and Second Thessalonians, um, from the book of Isaiah, we have all this information about this world ruler who's going to rise up in the very last days. And so though he committed all these detestable things, he is really just a picture of the ruler that is still yet to come. And, and as he does that, we have now the information on that particular, that particular prince that's still yet, yet for us to kind of unfold, if you will. And so as Antiochus Epiphanes fades off the scene, the Maccabees rise up, um, they, they, they fight that good fight. The Jewish people actually, <clears throat> though they are greatly degraded, they do survive. But ultimately, the Jewish people would come under tremendous attack. They would be dispersed throughout all of the, all of the lands of the world and would not come back until May 14th of 1948. And so this is a little bit of the history of the prehistory before we get to the time that your Bible says is the time of the end. And this is where this steps into now our time domain, where, where we are 
probably living in, in our own day and time. And I always am hesitant to say with, with too much dogmatism that we know that we know. But we do know so much about what should be happening at the end that it's very easy for us to see that we are way closer to the end now than the world has ever been. And chief among those things is the fact that Israel is in the land. They are speaking again Hebrew. And Jesus made some statements about the Jewish people that once they got there, they would never ever be removed again until this man comes on the scene. Verse 36, the second prince, also known in this passage uh, by what he does, which is to do according to his own king. That makes him what we would call this willful king uh, here in verses 36 to 39. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time on him. And then the king shall do according to his own will. So this is a new king. This is a king who's like Antiochus Epiphanes and all of his evil. Um, this is a king who will do so many things that were like Antiochus Epiphanes that sometimes people have confused the two. But there's some information in these verses that helps us understand that these are two different princes. They have two different purposes. They are at two different times. And one of them we have not yet seen. And so it says, the king shall do according to his own will. And he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Interestingly enough, the reason that we know this is not Antiochus Epiphanes, the main reason is Antiochus Epiphanes had a god. It was Zeus. And that's why he erected the temple, the statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. He worshiped Zeus. So he himself cannot be exalted above the god that he worshiped, and he worshiped Zeus. And so he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. In other words, he is going to be unto himself and to everyone else worshiped as God. And shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. That's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was a supreme God. The, the Greeks weren't sure who he was. The Romans were not sure who he was. But it was believed that there was always a supreme God. Sometimes they, they would worship Zeus. Uh, it, it, as that supreme God. And other times they say, no, Zeus is just, you know, he's a little bit too capricious, so he's probably not the God of God. So they left room for there to be a God even greater than any of the gods that they knew about. And they kind of gave him a loose name called the God of Gods. And so he'll speak blasphemies against that God of Gods. And as far as the Jewish people were concerned, they told everybody there is one God and we worship him. So to Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the reasons that he attacked the Jewish people is they worshiped the one true God and he couldn't be their God. And he, they certainly weren't gonna worship Zeus. And for the Antichrist, the Antichrist is plainly declaring, look, there's no other God but me. I'm God. And shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. Circle that word wrath because this is a super important word in this particular passage. Because if you know your Bible, you know that your Bible plainly declares, as Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, that he's not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. And that the purpose for those very last days is God is going to pour out his wrath on the unbelieving world for all that mankind has been allowed to do. And man has not turned to Christ. Man has disobeyed God. There is a point at which God's going to say, that's it. And at that point in time, he is going to pour out his unmitigated wrath. There will be no slowing it down. He's not going to withhold. And we know that time as the tribulation. It's contained in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 19. It's this incredible picture of the bowls of wrath, the trumpet judgments, these scrolls that are opened, these horrific things that occur. The Bible has a ton of to say about who this guy is. But notice some of the other things that are contained here in these final verses that we'll look at tonight. Till the wrath has been accomplished. That means it's finished, it's over, it's done. For what has been determined shall be done. In other words, God has planned from the beginning. Unfortunately, if man won't turn, then God is gonna have to deal with mankind's sin. It's the purpose, ultimately, that we find for this time that we call the tribulation. 
And it's very specifically focused on what mankind has done to national Israel or to the Jewish people, and very specifically in dividing up the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what has been done in dispersing the Jewish people into the world, according to Joel Joel chapter 3. God determined what's going to be done. He has a time and a purpose and a season for everything, including when he is going to be done with the age of grace. Now, here's the good part. We're still here tonight. We're still talking about it, so it hasn't come yet. Amen? That's why we continue to preach the gospel. That's why we keep sharing the good news. That is why we want to tell people the good news. When we give them the bad news, you want to make sure and tell them the good news. The good news is, if you're hearing this tonight, there's still time for you to be saved. And you can still look at this as if it's never going to happen to you because you've been spared from that. That's the plain teaching of Scripture. God has not appointed us under wrath, but unto salvation. So if it's his wrath that's going to be poured out, it's not going to be poured out on his church. That's the reason the church is not mentioned anywhere from Revelation 6 to Revelation 19. There's no mention of the church. Why? Because the church is in heaven. The church has been snatched away. There with the rest of the believers that have died and gone on before us, we're going to be coming back with Jesus at the second coming. But while all this wrath is happening, these things poured out, the Antichrist rises and does all of the things he's going to do, the church will be in heaven. And he goes on. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. This leads me to believe, and I'm just going to say it, very high degree of possibility that the Antichrist will be Jewish and he may well be also a homosexual. And so that strikes some people as being really specific. But I haven't met a man yet that isn't a homosexual that doesn't have a desire for women. And so I I think that that's a fairly safe assumption. Now, it's not being completely specific here But because he has no desire for women, he's either going to be the strangest guy that's ever walked the face of the earth, or it's really possible that he is not going to have the God of his fathers. There was only one God of his fathers, and that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it does look like the Bible at least loosely says that the Antichrist may well be Jewish. That would make sense given the things that he's going to do. And with no regard for women or no regard for any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. In other words, he is going to be worshiped as God. Antiochus was never worshiped as God. Matter of fact, he didn't ask to be specifically worshiped as God. That was a reason for setting up Zeus in the temple of the Jewish people. But in their place... He shall honor a God of fortresses, a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. In other words, his God, uh, the the God that he really did not and does not know, he's going to give honor at least to war. He's going to think that's a great thing. And as we turn our attention to the book of Revelation, we'll see that the Antichrist ultimately does become a god of war. Matter of fact, a god of destruction. Not just war. Unbridled destruction to mankind. And thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, which he shall cause them to rule over many and again divide the land for gain. And the land is the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, there will be again political dissent and division in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But this time is going to be very temporary. And so we can glean so many things. And I want to remind you that these slides can simply be downloaded. So you can go to CCSB, our Calvary Chapel, South Bay, uh, ccsouthbay.org forward slash now. Uh, You can click on the little link there that will allow you to download these slides. So if you want to get these scripture references, you can do that. He's going to be the serpent seed of Genesis 3.15. He's going to be the one that's going to step into that place. He's going to be the wicked man. He's going to be Assyria in that sense. This final prince is going to come in his own name. He's going to be the profane king. He is going to be 
uh, the prince of, of Daniel chapter seven. We skipped over him. He's the other horn. Remember, there's two little horns. One of them is the Antichrist. The other is Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Antiochus is a type of this final uh, ruler that's gonna come. This man who comes in his own name. This passage tells us that. He's a man of lawless, lawlessness. Second Thessalonians chapter two reminds us of that. First John actually gives him the title of the Antichrist, or at least says he will be Antichrist in, the, in what he does. And he's also the beast of Revelation 13. And so this particular king, if you look at the things that are said here, fit exactly one person in the whole rest of the Bible. There's no other ruler that's ever mentioned in all of scripture that comes close to matching this list that's found here in verses 36 to 39. And so when you look at the things that are there and then you go back through the rest of your Bible, we are given very specific details about the personality uh, and a whole ton of other things about this one that's called the willful king here in chapter 11. Um, he's, we know about his personality. We know about his genius. We know about the way he thinks. And, and so the first thing that we're told about him um, in Daniel chapter seven, if you remember, he's going to be a great order. He's gonna speak extremely clearly, extremely well. Um, the book of Revelation actually says he's going to be regal in his authority. Uh, Daniel calls him a demagogue or a small god in that way. He's gonna be a philosopher. He, he's gonna traffic uh, as we saw in chapter eight in deception. He, he's going to give us the, the sense, Daniel reminded us that in chapter eight. He's going to be clever. He's going to be persistent as a politician. We saw that in chapter eight of, of Daniel. He will be a deceiver. And he ultimately is going to start the world's one world religion. That one world religion will ultimately be called Mystery Babylon. It, it will worship its own false god. There will be a one world religion, a one world government, and a one world monetary system. And you will need to belong to all three if you're going to survive during that time. He's gonna be a military genius. We saw that back in Daniel chapter seven. We also see that in Revelation chapter six. He's gonna be different from all other men on the face of the earth. He's going to be so distinguished in his character according to Revelation chapter 23 and chapter 19. And again, in Daniel chapter seven, we saw this. He's gonna be so different that, that people are going to wonder if he isn't God. He will be so insanely intelligent, according to Daniel chapter seven, that people are going to worship his intellect. He's gonna be the perfection, if you will. In Revelation chapter 13, we find that this, this one who comes towards the end called the Antichrist has the number of a man. Anybody remember what that is? It's 666, right? He's unique in all of human history. He'll be the only one to ever have that, that designation. And so he'll be the perfection of unholiness in that sense, just everything about him. And so we know about his personality. We know about how he thinks. We know some of his intellect, the tools that he'll employ. <clears throat> We also know about his moral character. And when you look at what, again, Scripture says, and you, you can simply mark these passages. There are multiple chapters here, I realize that. But if you simply go through them and you look for those places where there's this unique individual that's described, you're going to see that the Bible has clearly told us what this one world ruler is going to do, how he's going to act, what he's going to say, we're gonna get some things about his origin, where he comes from. And so some of these things with regard to his character, he's the personification of selfish ambition. In other words, he's an absolute dictator. We see that here in Daniel chapter 11, there in verse 36. He, he is going to blaspheme God <clears throat> with the extraordinary gift that he has of blasphemy like no person has ever had. Again, we see that here. We also see that in Revelation chapter 13. We see that again in 2 Thessalonians chapter two. And so this one world ruler that's gonna come on the scene that is going to be this tremendous orator at first, this tremendous politician at first, but also one of the most immoral people on the face of the earth. One of the reasons that people have guessed who the Antichrist is throughout history they, they looked at Stalin and go, it's got to be Stalin. And they looked at Lenin, got to be Lenin. 
And, you know, they went through this long list. People thought it has to be Hitler. It's got to be Pol Pot. You know, we've had people time and time again say, it has to be this person, has to be that person. And the reason they make those assumptions is some of the information that's contained in Scripture. They look at it, oh, he's a great orator. The biggest problem is none of those guys ever set themselves up to be worshipped actually as God. They didn't start a religion with themselves at the center. They may have been incredibly powerful military rulers. They may have been blasphemous in every way, shape, or form. But there is something unique about the character of this final prince that we have here in Daniel chapter 11. He's going to reject all religion. Hitler didn't reject religion. Stalin did, but Hitler didn't. Stalin was an atheist. Hitler was actually, at times, kind of tried to be a Lutheran. Which, by the way, don't blame the Lutheran church for Adolf Hitler. That was Adolf's deal, okay? An extreme egotist. We see that here in Daniel chapter 11. He was a materialist. We see that here. He was a worshiper and fancier of himself as a military ruler here in Daniel chapter 11. He's a rewarder of people who acknowledge him. We see that here in Daniel chapter 11. So the moral character of this guy, he is like the perfect world ruler because he knows exactly how to use everything to his advantage. A third area that we can see in Scripture is where he comes from. We actually know a little bit about his origin. He's going to come out of the revised Roman Empire. He's actually going to be part of this thing uh, which at one point in time was ruled by Rome. We see that in Revelation chapter 17. That's his political origin. His national origin Uh, may well come from the Jewish people. His racial origin certainly will come from the Jewish people. Um, His spiritual origin is Satan. He's going to be an emissary of Satan. And his providential origin is God. God's going to allow him to exist. God's going to use him just like he used the Assyrians, just like he used Antiochus. You may be sitting here and say, that makes no sense to me. Uh, That's because we're not God. If God has to use extreme measures like this, there's going to be a reason for it, and you can trust him with it. One of the problems that I always have when I describe this man, it seems so horrific that it's almost inconceivable that the Lord would ever let him be born. Amen? That's kind of how I look at it. It's like, if I was God, he's not ever going to be born. That's not happening. It gives you an idea where where mankind's heart is headed. You know, sometimes we look at our world and we're tempted to see it from two extremes. One is, there's a lot of good things, and there are. We've made tremendous advancements in a lot of areas where life is generally better than it used to be. But we are more corrupt than we have ever been in human history. So on one hand, you have like medical advances, technological advances, things that make life easier. Our our lives are so easy Compared to our forefathers, it's almost staggering. But at the same time, our society is so corrupt that there's no moral place that we're anchored to. We have this insane dichotomy of all these good things that should make us better people, but we've actually ended up being more wicked than we used to be before. And I believe that is the reason the Antichrist is going to be successful. Because we have people who are extremely intelligent in our world today. We have more education than we've ever had globally. You have more people with college degrees than we've ever had globally. It doesn't matter what country you go to. If you go there, there are more people today, college educated, that have more intellect than people have ever had. And yet we've used it for massive amounts of horrific things. And so I believe that this is just exactly the type of person that God is going to have to allow to come on the scene because the whole world is going to think they're the answer. Why do you think humanism has risen to the level it's risen? Why do you think narcissism is as high as it is? Because we all think that we know better. And I'm saying that to all of us, myself included. We live in a day and time where we think that we actually have the answers or at least could get the answers. 
And God's going to say, no, you're still people. We're actually told about the steps of his rise to power. And so a fourth area that we could look at and in how he's going to get to that place, he's going to be the product of iniquity. In other words, the world is going to become so corrupt that he'll actually make sense. Now think about it for a second. Think about the perversity that's in our world. And I don't want to belabor this point, but think about where we are. For those of you who are a little younger in the room, you've grown up in a world that is so morally desensitized that we don't even know what morality is in our country anymore. We have things that are so unspeakable that when I was born, they not only were illegal, they were a felony. If you were caught possessing a movie of two people in a a sexual compromised position, that was a felony when I was a child. Today, we call it entertainment, right? Am I right? That's where we are. That's happened in my lifetime. That's happened in my lifetime. We went from Mayberry RFD, Opie and Andy, Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, to the dirty bachelorettes and bachelors of whatever county in the world. You know, it's just, it's insane. We've become morally corrupt and people think it's completely normal. And so our minds are being broken and people don't even recognize it. They're walking around in this false reality that this is okay. Now imagine you throw in greed and craft and taking advantage of other people and war, the things that we we seemingly make merchandise of now. And praise God for our military that keeps us safe, but we have more ways to kill people than you can possibly imagine. It's a multiple hundred billion dollar industry in the United States of America. Fully one-third of our national budget, one-third is spent on war or the things that make for it. So think about that for a second and then ask yourself, what kind of world ruler is going to have to come on the scenes to solve that type of dilemma? It's going to have to be somebody who can bring peace to that type of world. It's going to have to be an incredible incredible orator that can bring together all these diverse aspects of humanity and somehow make covenants with everybody on the face of the earth. The world's going to have to be a worse mess than it is today because people are going to have to want it. Right now, everyone's like, oh, it's like, you know, NFL season's coming. We're going to have a new stadium. Seriously, think about it. Look, I'm a football fan. I'm still praying that we actually get a Super Bowl someday. (laughs) However, I don't think that rises to the level of worldwide concerns, amen? And yet we're spending six, seven billion dollars on a football stadium and we can't solve the homeless crisis here in LA? Think about it. Think about it for a second. You think we could solve the homeless crisis with those 300 acres and the amount of money we're spending on that stadium? You think we could do that? Think we could keep playing in the Coliseum for a while while we solve that problem and give people places to live? Think that might be a better idea? But that's not what's happening, right? Why is that? Because people don't care like they should about their brothers and sisters. They can look at that problem and just walk right past it. People sit in offices of of political power and they have power and they have money and they do nothing about these problems. Somebody's going to come on the scene. I can fix that. I can solve homelessness. I can solve the mental health crisis. I can solve the opiate problem. I can solve the problem of incarceration of masses of of our citizens. Imagine somebody comes on the scene and says they can do all that stuff and they can actually do it. 
Think that person's going to be popular? Think the whole world's going to go, yay! Of course they are. Brings a, a ten-nation confederacy in Europe. It's going to be a world power. It's going to bring peace to the entire world. It's going to destroy all of the diversity of the world's religion. It's going to just lump them all together. It's going to persecute the church. Now, I hate to say this, but as a Bible-believing Christian, you're one of the most hated groups of people on the face of the earth. There are people who think we're the problem. Now imagine that the Lord raptures us home. We're not around anymore. They're going to have, yay, the, the Christians are dead day. It's like, we're all gone. It's like, about time. I don't know how God's going to pull that off. I don't know whether they're going to think the aliens came and got us or what. But I know this. Guy's going to rise up and he's going to take advantage of that very thing and go, see, now that the Christians are gone, we can just all band together and have our nice little world religion. We're told about that rise of power. The world is going to be in chaos. Jesus said it will be the birth pains. There'll be the things that precede it. The world will be in absolute chaos. There's going to be war and rumors of war constantly. False religion will be everywhere. Now imagine that all those groups that gather together that right now that can't stand people who actually believe the Bible's true, all of a sudden we're not around anymore and everybody's like, well, see, we told you. Those false religions are going to look good. It's exactly what's going to happen there in Revelation chapter 17. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says there's going to be satanic deception that's going to overtake the entire world. The whole world is going to fall under the sway of the wicked one. You're going to have economic, military sanctions against people that uh, right now we would call enemies to, to the world. People are going to start to openly blaspheme they're, they're just going to no longer restrain themselves. You know, right now, we're fairly protected in this country. You know, we actually have the right to be here tonight. But I think it's going to come a time when we're not going to have the right to meet together. There's been talk for a very, very, very long time about the church simply needing to meet in private like it used to meet. And then we're told finally about the end of this willful king He's going to launch a campaign there at the very end. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to see that next time, by the way. He's going to be captured. Finally, he's going to be chained up and thrown into the depths of Sheol and eventually into the lake of fire there in Revelation 19, where he'll get his due. So the Bible has actually told us a ton about this particular ruler, what the world will look like when he rises, what the conditions in the world will be, in other words, the tools that will be necessary for him to have to even rise to power. You see, a thousand years ago, if you'd have been in the Dark Ages, let's just say you went back to the time of the Crusades. You're there in medieval England, and all of a sudden, you say, well, you know, we're going to start a one-world government and a one-world religion. Islam did not exist. Hinduism was confined to a very small area of what we call modern-day India or Indochina. Confucianism was existent. Buddhism was existent, very small pockets. There would have been no way. There would have been no need. But now... We have the technology that the whole world can have the same information instantaneously, don't we? You just pull out your cell phone. Oh, look, the Antichrist is calling. <laughs> He's not going to call himself that, but you're going to get your word for the day from the world ruler. And you're going to get your spiritual feeding for the day from that same world ruler. And oh, by the way, you can pay for anything you want with that little chip in your forehead. Or your hand. Anybody else freaked out by these things? It's like, 
I don't think I want my watch paying for everything when I walk by. And yet it can already. I don't know how many of you were around. Remember Dick Tracy? Remember the watches? I got one. Right here. So what's happening? You know, I, I literally can you know, like talk to my wife right now if I wanted to. That's crazy. You see, back in the Middle Ages, there's no possible way that that would have been able to even occur. But now those technologies exist. Somebody could be seen no matter where anyone is on the face of the globe, instantaneously around the world. Amen? In real time, by the way. Such a tiny delay that you wouldn't even know it. And so your Bible is describing this final world ruler. In essence, the book of Daniel is a, is a polemic against mystery Babylon, the religion of the last days. As this prince gains power, this religion's gonna help him to rise to power. And then this kind of this fine, some final thoughts, if you will. Revelation 17 says this beast with 10 horns is gonna rise up and then eventually it's gonna come against this, this mystery religion itself. Ultimately, the power behind the Antichrist is Satan himself. Because we're going to get to, in our study in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, very shortly, and we're going to see the fall of Lucifer. And it's very telling, because it says, Of him, you've fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down from earth. You've been laid low. And it tells us why. It tells us what the reason is for the fall of Satan. And if you look at the reason for the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14, I will ascend unto heaven. I will rise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the uttermost heights of the sacred mount. That's Jerusalem, folks. Satan's goal ultimately was to be worshipped just like God was worshipped in the temple. And in fact, his throne was supposed to be above God's throne. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds I will make myself like the Most High God. What's the Antichrist going to do? He's going to take his cue from his boss. He's going to desire to be worshipped. He's going to raise his throne above the heavens. And so ultimately, because we know that Antiochus Epiphanes worshipped a god Zeus and erected that image in the temple, we know it wasn't Antiochus. We know the conditions that are described in the book of Revelation have never occurred in the history of mankind. And in fact, they couldn't have occurred up until our day and time. They were an impossibility. They're now a reality. They actually wouldn't be that difficult now. Whereas it would have been impossible even a few hundred years ago. The Lord himself Alone is God. And so this willful king, which is in a way pictured in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to desire to be worshipped. And during that final seven, we see all these things that occur as the, the Lord's wrath is poured out on this earth. Notice that the focus of this particular passage of Scripture, it tells us until the time of wrath is completed. That can only be Daniel's 70th week. It can only be the time when God's wrath is poured out. It's exactly what God said he would do in the very last days when rebellious mankind refuses to turn. And so this final prince is yet to come. That's the good news. Amen? We just need to be ready. And that means we need to be focused on heaven and we need to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords personally. Because if you know the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords personally, you're never going to see this dude. Because the Lord Jesus is going to chain him up and throw him in the pit. We're going to be coming back with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords from heaven to make sure this guy doesn't ever take another breath. But the world is going to see him. 
And so our goal is to make sure that the world knows that there's a choice to be made. And it's either the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or it's the devil and his minions. It's the Antichrist and all those who followed him ever since he fell. And so I pray that as we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be telling other people about our Savior so that they don't ever have to meet this guy either. Amen? Let's stand together and we'll pray. Going to bring some of the pastors up front, be available for prayer. If you don't know the Lord and you just got a little bit of history lesson of what's ahead, because that's the way it is in God's particular case, right? <laughs> he writes history in advance as he speaks through his prophets. He's telling us what's going to happen before it happens. Then there's some tough days coming ahead for mankind. You, you don't want to be here for that. So the choice is yours. You can simply believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And then you can join the rest of us in telling people about the Savior. And instead of being afraid of what's going to come, you can be absolutely confident that one day you're going to step out of time and into eternity. And you're going to see the face of Jesus and rejoice in heaven. Amen? Father, thank you that that is true. Lord, that we who believe in you, though we will one day take our last breath, we may be raptured, but Lord, if we die, uh, we know in whom we have believed, and we believe, Lord, with all of our heart uh, that you were able to save to the uttermost, and we will see you face to face, both in heaven and here on this earth, just as Job declared there in Job 19. And so, Lord, we thank you for that promise. We thank you for the blessing that we have of walking as children of grace. Lord, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, so, Lord, this should not strike fear into the heart of we who believe but it should make us very busy about our Father's business. The time really is short. It's getting shorter each day. Lord, whether you come tonight or you come tomorrow or next week, next year, 10 years from now, we don't know. We don't have any idea on how to, how to judge all of that, but we believe that what your word says is true. Now one day the trumpet's going to sound and we who are alive and remain on this earth are going to be caught up together with you in the air and we want to be ready for that moment. So bring salvation to the lost tonight. Would the wayward be brought home to your sheepfold? Father, encourage us and strengthen us as we live our lives in these last days. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.